The following podcast contains strong language and adult themes and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Behold, Behold. the annals of pestilence. The stories you're about to hear are not real, though they contain elements of the truth. The tales herein might entertain you, cause you to smile, or perhaps cry, or something else entirely. Because this anthology of narratives, some of them connected, others less so, acts as a door to another realm. You are about to board an interdimensional cruise ship en route to comedy, tragedy, and unspeakable cosmic horror. This one-way journey is powered by existential dread and nervous laughter. Once boarded, there is no turning back. The stories you are about to hear are an infection, a narrative Contagion, the word virus. Season 3, Punk Rock versus the Lizard People, Apprentices. Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People is currently available in its unabridged entirety as a novel by Joshua S. Porter. Order the book today on Amazon.com. This story references songs available on playlists through Apple Music and Spotify by searching Punk Rock vs. the Lizard People. Mod Log 17, Table of Insurrection. The shower was perhaps the best I'd ever taken in my life. The enormous shower head was fixed to the ceiling, producing a circumference of hot water that encapsulated my body. After what seemed like an hour, I'd had enough. Clearing the steam from the mirror with the palm of my hand, I eyed my tired-looking face and stringy wet hair in the water-beaded mirror. For the first time since we'd left my attic, I thought about what was going on. I wondered what our parents were thinking if they suspected anything was amiss just yet. Pained by the idea of worrying so many people, I pushed the thought away, assuring myself of the greater good. My skin red and pruned, I shuffled over to the drawers beneath my bed and retrieved a pair of briefs, a toothbrush, and an unlabeled tube I assumed was toothpaste. Standing over the small sink, I opened the tube and sniffed it warily. It smelled minty. Even so, I couldn't keep myself from scrunching my face, gingerly touching the tip of my tongue to the glistening white smudge of my toothbrush, worried alien toothpaste might taste like cheese or bleach. It didn't. It tasted like toothpaste. That's almost weirder, I thought. After two rejected prospects, I found a set of gray coveralls that fit nicely. The only text on the garment was written in Emi, so I had no idea what they said or what they were made of, but it felt like cotton. I wouldn't say so out loud, but it looked sort of cool. Even so, I'd feel better with my own jacket and shoes. Batting the excess sand and melted slush from my backpack, I retrieved my converse from inside, then remembered I'd given my jacket to Becky. 
I sat on the edge of the bottom bunk for a moment, suddenly realizing that the rest of Isaiah's plan was about to be set in motion. We would be trained here, prepared for the insanity that would follow when we revealed the truth about the Death Scroll, which we'd officially stolen from the Shyad. I wondered what Isaiah had been talking about when he mentioned a surprise. I half expected to find everyone in the hallway waiting on me, but the corridor was empty. Approaching the room I'd seen Becky enter earlier, I knocked and called for her a couple of times without hearing any response. Were these things soundproof? Had she fallen asleep in there? Covering my eyes, just in case, I set my hand on the entrance panel and let the door open before me. Hey, Becky, I said cautiously. You decent? Oh, please, I heard her say a few feet away, like you didn't see everything already. Yes, I'm dressed, you dork. I didn't see anything, I lied, stepping into the room. Can I get my jacket? She nodded at the sink where the jacket was draped on the countertop looking slightly damp. I tried cleaning the sand off for you. Thanks for letting me borrow it. She leaned over and kissed my cheek. How do I look? Her hair still wet, Becky had selected an appropriately form-fitting uniform. Yeah, I stammered awkwardly. Space babe. Total space babe, she agreed. Is anyone else ready? Becky and I went about gathering the others with the same cautionary method I'd used to avoid intruding on her. We were bummed to find Flynn and Bradley first, both of them in one room posing for Nars Slate pictures. Are you guys slates weird in this place? Flynn asked without looking at us. Mine is acting slow. Mine isn't working at all, Bradley whined. This is completely bogus. We don't have those stupid things, you little dummy, I said. We're going downstairs. The others all seemed to have either just finished getting ready or else wanted five more minutes to brush their teeth. Emma's was the last door to get open by process of elimination, and when she squealed as the door opened, we assumed she wasn't quite ready. With everyone else gathered in the hallway, I took an inventory of the group. Connor, who didn't seem to have showered, looked bizarre in his coveralls. If he hadn't put his leather jacket on over them, he'd have barely been recognizable at all. Jade was cleaning his glasses on his uniform. Paul was adjusting his beanie. Barrett gestured at Emma's door. Is she not ready? I need my vest. Please, Becky rolled her eyes. Need might be a bit of an exaggeration. Look, Becky, Barrett said. You brought the bras. I brought the vest. Must we fight? Not in space, Becky relented, hugging him. All right, all right, said Barrett. Let's not get carried away here. We're not really in space, are we? Jade pointed out, smiling like a dork. Not any more than we're on Earth. Are you an astrologer? Paul pressed him, cocking his head. Well, no, because those guys write horoscopes and stuff. I think you meant to say astronomer? I think you meant to say you're not either one, Paul concluded, poking Jade in the collarbone. Jade swatted his hand away. Emma! Barrett yelled. We all want to find out if I say his big surprise is actually just him finally eating us. I think our rooms are soundproof, I said. Wait, who is eating us? Becky asked quietly, sounding genuinely worried. You get Emma, Jade proposed, tapping my shoulder as if to appoint me to the task. She's your girlfriend and all. She's not my girlfriend, 
I said, embarrassed. Either way, he shrugged, you get it. If you see blood in the elevator, steal a gaulish and make a run for it. Why are you guys talking like this? Becky asked. Come on, Becky, Barrett said, steering her toward the elevator. Let's go face our destiny. They better not eat me, Becky warned anyone listening, her voice disappearing down the elevator shaft with the others. Covering my eyes again, I opened Emma's door a second time. I'm not looking, I announced hastily. Are you ready to head downstairs yet? Peering through my fingers, I saw Emma dressed, wiping the last bits of dust from Barrett's red vest. She looked like a comic book vixen in her perfectly shaped rebel uniform. I'm ready, she answered coolly, folding the vest over her arm and eyeing me thoughtfully. Have you had any time to be scared? A little, I nodded. Mostly I worried about what our parents are thinking. Emma laughed. I didn't exactly tell them I was going to travel naked through space with a bunch of boys. I tell my mom that very thing every time I leave home, just in case. She was closer now, smiling up at me. It was kind of you to prepare her for a time like this. I shrugged as she put her arms over my shoulders. I'm nothing if not thoughtful. I've noticed, she smiled. It seems to me the only reason we're all here together is because of you. I'm not sure that's a good thing, I admitted, suddenly realizing the gravity of it. I'm convinced it is, Danny Thomas, she said, just before she kissed me. freight elevator was huge. You could park several cars on it. Maybe that's what they did, I thought, as Emma and I descended further and further with no idea of when we'd ever stop. Like the doors to our room, the elevator had only a single touch panel with no other buttons or controls at all. Holding my hand in the middle of this huge contraption, Emma sidled up next to me, presumably as wary as I was about the strange journey down. Before I could fret any further, the distant sound of music below us drifted in over the roar of the elevator. Emma and I looked at one another, confused, as the wall before us opened into a vast chamber, the elevator finally slowing to a stop. No way, I whispered, in total awe of the scene unfolding before me. We stepped out on a raised wooden platform overlooking the incredible sight. The elevator opened into an enormous garage-like area that had been transformed into easily the most badass dwelling I'd ever seen. A light fog hung in the air catching flashes of neon and the flickering glow of the countless arcade cabinets scattered throughout the room. There were pool tables, skee-ball, 
air hockey, and those frustrating games where you try to see how many basketball goals you can achieve on a timer. One area of the garage had been made into a skate park, the ramps covered in bright graffiti. Another area looked like a strangely placed pizzeria with round booths upholstered in cracked red leather. Dude, a voice called from below us. Connor was at the foot of the platform, his face urgent. Let's go get the skateboards. What is this place? I said, quickly descending the platform stairs. Where is everyone? What's going on? Connor seemed frantic, his eyes bulging. It's incredible, dude. Are you seeing this? They have everything. Why? I asked, fighting back the adrenaline rush long enough to question things. Why in the world is this place set up this way? They let me design it, said a voice behind me. I spun around, stumbling backward into Connor. Holy shit, I said again. The great power surf, Connor whispered reverently. There he stood, his trademark shaved head and muscular physique fit into a black t-shirt and blue jeans. This legendary six-foot black man looking like Wesley Snipes, approaching two scrawny punk teenagers on another planet. Did you lock the arcade before you left Portland? Power Surf asked, pointing at Connor and sounding suddenly stern. Connor nodded. Great, Power Surf said happily, clapping his hands together. Can you believe this place? When we first started planning, it was just an empty warehouse. How the hell did all this get here? I asked. Power Surf looked around the room. Inorganic transports, mostly. Some of it we built with Gaina materials. The Emi have a rich culture of carpentry, electronics, and engineering, and they're so damn big and strong that making something like a pool table is no big deal. How many people are here? People? Power Surf repeated, understanding my inference and passing judgment on it. The only earthlings here are you guys, me, and a few other brains that have been here since day one. You'll meet everyone tonight. And the assholes upstairs, Connor grumbled. Right, Power Surf sighed, shaking his head. I heard about those two. Then why all this? I asked, desperately, gesturing to the amazingness surrounding us. Why are you questioning it, dude? Connor pleaded. This is Kingdom of God level stuff right here. Power Surf laughed. The training is going to be a bitch. I was brought on to balance the torture with some fun. Is the training that bad? This is a lot of fun for just seven people. Not to bum anyone out, said Power Surf, but originally we planned for more than just the seven of you. And hell, I did get a little carried away. Are more people coming? Connor asked. I'm afraid not, Power Surf said. Plans change. We stood there for a moment, thinking this over. We're screwed, aren't we? I said flatly. Far from it, my friend, Power Surf said, gripping my shoulder. Even so, the training is still going to be a bitch. Like, really brutal. Well, geez, Emma spoke up, startling all three of us. You're sort of scaring me away here. Don't worry, Power Surf smiled. You'll have help.
When Isaiah found us talking to PowerServe, he insisted that no one worry about retrieving their skateboards just yet, leading the group through the endlessly compelling wonders of PowerSurf's ultimate creation. I noticed a Dragon's Lair machine as we moved past the arcade games. Dude, I said urgently, elbowing Isaiah, is this where you got good at Dragon's Lair? Fucking A, he said. We walked through the pizzeria and the skate park, arriving at a large door that Isaiah moved aside by gripping a handle on one end and walking the heavy thing from one side to the other. The door rolling shut behind us, we stepped into a new area that looked alarmingly like something from an insane asylum. Or a slaughterhouse. It looks bad, Isaiah admitted, but it isn't. We perfected the procedure a long time ago, but we haven't exactly renovated the facilities. Procedure? Becky asked in disbelief. Minimally invasive, said a painfully cool-sounding British accent as a new figure sauntered into the room through a door no one had noticed. You won't even have to go under. No, Connor gasped. There, in that same creepy room with us, stood none other than David Bowie himself. Garbed in the same generic coveralls as the rest of us, he smiled with his hands on his hips, a glint in his mismatched eyes, one pupil forever bigger than the other. Bowie smiled beneath his teased, dirty blonde mullet and nodded an informal hello. David Bowie, I said, astonished. Well done, Barrett said, slapping my back, clearly embarrassed. Each one of you will be fitted with one of these, David continued, unfazed by our adoration. He lifted his hand, revealing a soft-looking pink cube. It's cool to Moak. We're going to be fit with a piece of bubblicious? Paul asked, unimpressed. Actually, it's a bit like an internet connection for your brain, Paul, Bowie laughed, Connor and I gasping, already jealous that David Bowie somehow knew Paul's name. Bowie pointed at the pink cube and continued, With this, your brain can engage data directly from a pip. This, I'm afraid, is our only hope to complete your training within our very small window of time. Excuse me, Mr. Bowie, I said awkwardly, but what are you doing here? Not that we're not happy to meet you or anything. Isaiah did the explaining. David Bowie has been one of our scientists for longer than any of you would believe. So all that space alien stuff wasn't entirely an act, Barrett pointed out, nodding slowly in realization. Not an act at all, I'm afraid, Bowie answered cheerfully. I was destined to become an Emi rebel, you see. Our elders never cared for the, shall we call it, not-so-subtle public persona. No way, Connor whispered. Makes so much sense. Wait a minute, I said, squinting and pinching the bridge of my nose. Didn't the Emi arrive in the 70s? I thought you were born in 47. How right you are, Bowie conceded. It is indeed a matter of public record, but... I suspect that by now you all have become well aware of the fact that things are not often as they seem to be. How has no one asked the obvious question yet? said Barrett, looking around the group. Why the hell does he not look like a lizard? It's not an unfair question, Bowie confessed. But you see, I was the first success in a large series of failed attempts at engineering something quite like a human using the genetic building blocks of the Emi. So you're both... Becky asked, lowering her eyebrows. Bit of both, yes, Bowie nodded. But as you can see, 
he gestured to himself. I appear quite human. Entirely human, Jade observed. Now, now, Bowie chuckled. Let's not be mean. While it's true that Isaiah and I can no longer pass for brothers, it was a time, believe it or not, when distant cousins was a bit more realistic. What happened? I wondered aloud after a moment of silence. Years of my youth in Emi Labs, Bowie sighed with a sad smile. Terribly unpleasant, you see. Everything is becoming clear, Connor said quietly. My eyes are open. So what? Paul spoke up, pointing to the pink device in Bowie's hand. We get the bubblicious in our brains and we'll just know anything we need to know? Not exactly, said Isaiah. But the Moak can trick your brain into thinking that you have, say, mastered the piano by connecting the necessary data directly from APEP. If your brain knows how to do it, your body should follow suit. Whoa, said Jade. I've always wanted to learn the piano. Forget the piano, Isaiah insisted. Playing the piano isn't exactly crucial to this mission. But it could be, Jade suggested. But it isn't, Isaiah insisted. There are other skills you will need, and we don't have time for you to master them. The Moak is how we're going to cheat. So why was Power Surf going on about how brutal the training was going to be? I asked. Just give us the bubblicious and we'll be ready to rock, right? I'm afraid not, Danny, said Bowie, making my heart drop by using my name. The process is effective, but how do I put this? A bit untidy. He wobbled his hand in the air with the last word, the universal sign for so-so. Bowie continued, The Mohawk will give your brain the indication that amongst its library of knowledge exists any and all expertise cultivated over years of training and the disciplines necessary to complete your mission. Righteous, I whispered reverently. The catch, I'm afraid, Bowie continued with a sly grin, is that your brain will tell your body that you're ready to, say, do a backflip or wield a weapon. Your body will obey your brain, but will rapidly discover it hasn't put in the work, so to speak. If our brains have expertise in backflips, won't they just tell our bodies how to do a backflip? Jade asked, not comprehending the problem. Your brain will get you most of the way, Bowie assured him, but you will need a certain amount of physical conditioning to avoid exhaustion or injury. I can't believe I'm going to do a backflip, Becky giggled. Yeah, Paul spoke up as if suddenly realizing something. Was the backflip just an example or will we actually do backflips? Bowie laughed. I'm happy to say that though they are indeed included in your upcoming neural downloads, backflips will be perhaps least impressive amongst your new abilities. Coolness, Paul said slowly. So is no one worried about having those things put in our brains? Becky asked. Hey, yeah, wait, Jade said, considering the implications. You never mentioned necessary neurosurgery, Isaiah. The Moaks don't go inside your head, Isaiah explained. Everyone mellow out. Isaiah is quite right. Bowie agreed, turning his head to reveal a small bracket fastened behind his right ear. The MOAC is installed beneath a protective casing where a sophisticated sensor relays data to your brain, causing synaptic firing. As long as you wear the device, it communicates with your brain, and your brain will have no idea that it is doing all the heavy lifting on its own accord. 
Connor looked around the room. If it's all so easy, why does this room look like a torture chamber for mental patients? We found it this way, came another voice as the large door rolled open behind us. In stepped a tall, bearded man, lanky and thin, his long mop of hair going gray. The man approached our group, hands in the pockets of his slacks. We didn't exactly have our pick of secret hideouts, the man chuckled warmly. Why does this guy sound like Kermit the Frog? Becky whispered in my ear. Because, I whispered back, my eyes wide and my mouth hanging open. It is Kermit the Frog. That's Jim Henson. Everyone, Bowie announced happily, this is my friend Jim. He and I became fugitives together. Jim laughed. It was only a matter of time, I suppose. My God, said Connor. You're Jim Henson. I'm afraid so, Jim shrugged, hands still in his pockets. So you did get into trouble for making the dark crystal, Connor declared, clearly feeling vindicated. I told you guys. Well, yes and no, said Jim. Dark Crystal attracted a lot of necessary attention from all the wrong characters, but it was the work David and I were involved in that led to my capture. Capture? Emma asked. Of course they didn't call it that, Bowie said. Something like conscription, they said. Drafted into the Shyad, monitored and made to work on Emi projects, imposed with living conditions not unlike prison. So the rumors about you guys working together were true? Jade asked. Very much so, Bowie nodded. Two characters terribly disliked by the Emmy, conspiring together with puppets and rock and roll. A dangerous combination if ever there was such a thing. Bitchin', said Connor. Then, turning to Isaiah, added, This is incredible, dude. Who else do you have out here? The operation really is a small one, Isaiah assured him. I wish it wasn't so, but... We do have at least one more surprise for you guys. Everyone looked around expecting some other extraordinary personality to walk in. Later, Isaiah said. Should have mentioned that. So if you guys were locked up together, how did you both end up here? Said Paul. An enterprising young Shyad employee willing to question the status quo, Jim declared, nodding at Isaiah. When he'd seen the depth of the Emi conspiracy... Isaiah came to the only friends a traitor in hostile territory could find. Before we knew it, David and I were traveling through a wormhole. Totally, I said, pouncing immediately on the opportunity to relate to these two living legends. It's a gnarly ride, for sure. Gnarly indeed, Bowie agreed. And the ride is poised to become more gnarly still, my friends. He lifted the Moak once more. Who wants to go first? sharing the word virus via social media on twitter at the word virus and instagram at spread the word virus 
and at thewordvirus.com.